speaking of evangelism, I want to preach for souls today. If you want to go to Luke chapter 13, uh, we're going to begin at verse 22. All the people in the room, they're lost. Just get prepared. Get yourself stuck in that seat. All the people that think they're saved, get yourself prepared. Start quoting scriptures to yourself and stuff like that so that you won't have to look at your soul. But the Word of God says that we're supposed to test ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. And if you are above testing yourself, that guarantees you're out of the faith. That being in the faith calls us to humility to test ourselves. So I call everyone in this room to test yourself and test your heart and see if you're in the faith. And it shouldn't be a problem, as Paul said, unless you fail the test. So Luke chapter 13, beginning verse 22, reading to 30. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. Going back to verse 23 and 24, it says, Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, everyone say many, many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. This is not talking many will take another path. Many will seek to enter by the narrow gate. Many will try to enter by the cross, and they will not be able to. Will few be saved? He says, I tell you, you strive. That word strive means to work and to fight and to go for and to press yourself for and to lay hold of, like, like Paul said, lay hold of eternal life. And he says, I tell you, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, everyone say many. I want to hear you say it. Man, say it again. Say many. It says, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 verse 21 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, everyone say many. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And if I was going to title this message, which I rarely do, I would title it, Many People Come to the Cross, But Few Are Saved. Many people come to the cross, but few are saved. And I'll show you this out of Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And I want to go back to verse 48. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. Um, there's actually a saying in Israel, even today, they call people breast beaters. 
And what it means is that person was quite emotional. They beat their chest. They were so moved, they beat their chest in agony. Two days ago, I was in so much agony that I was beating my chest, and I was cried like a child. I was emotional like a child. I'm not really one to cry, except really with Jesus is when I cry, and I cried harder. My whole face was giving out every bit of tears I could get. My, I was grimaced, and I was crying like a child, and all my emotions were coming out. And it says that this group came to the cross, this many came to the cross, they beat their chest in agony, they let all their emotion come out, and then they returned. And that word returned actually means to turn back. This great many people came not just to a site, they came to the cross of Jesus, they saw Jesus die, they saw him in agony, they saw him take on the sins of the world, they saw him give up his life for the sins of the world, they saw everything that happened on that that day on that hill called Golgotha they were moved with emotion they were broken and when their emotions were over they went home and they turned back and it's still the same today many people come to the cross but few are saved they still come to the cross. Why did this big group of people come to the cross? Maybe it was uh, excitement of the day. Maybe there were people running through the streets saying, did you hear what's happening? Jesus, the prophet, the one of Nazareth, the one that healed the sick and raised the dead, the one that everyone's talking about. Remember, we thought he was the Messiah. People were, he had crowds of thousands. Remember, he broke the bread. I was there that day when he broke the bread. It's so exciting. They're putting him on the cross. And maybe the, the people flock. Well, you know, it's the same thing today. Did you hear about that church? It's so exciting. They say people are being healed. They say people are being changed. They say that the worship is amazing. The preaching is awesome. The light show is spectacular. The PowerPoint will make your heart move. Do you know how many Christian colleges I visit and that's what people are coming for? They don't come for the word of God. They come because this school has the light show. This school has a more relevant attitude toward missions. This school is exciting, and most people today in America go after what's exciting much faster than they go after what is true. And so maybe the people came to the cross because they were excited at what was happening. Maybe they came out of mo emotions. Maybe when that same person knocked on the door and said, did you hear? They're crucifying Jesus. The people were grieved. Oh, not Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one that healed my daughter who was demon-possessed. You know, Jesus was the one that opened up the eyes of blind Bartimaeus. You know, I know him. Not Jesus. He's so good. And they were moved with emotion. And all the way from their house with the large crowd all the way to that cross, maybe they were beating their chest saying, oh, no, not Jesus, not Jesus, not Jesus. And you know, today, many people still try to come into the kingdom based on the feeling of emotion. Oh, but he's so precious. Oh, that Lamb of God did take away the sins of the world. Oh, I'm so excited, and I'm so broken. I cry. You know, I have two family members that come to my mind right now that uh, they come and hear me preach about once every three years. They're both lost, but they both go to church. They're lost, but they're churchgoers. But they're lost. They're lost, lost, lost. They come in here, and they sit in any, any row. And when I begin to preach, they cry. They're wounded. It doesn't matter what I preach. I can preach on, on the cross. I can preach on healing. I can preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I can preach on the word of God. Whatever it is, they're moved to tears. They cry, they cry, they cry. They cry from the beginning to the end. They cry, they cry, they cry, they cry. And then at the end, if there's any kind of call to repent or come to Jesus, or even just to get prayer or anything, all the tears are wiped away. They shake it off. They come up to me afterwards. They say, we're just so proud of you. You're doing such a good job. And then they walk out the door just as lost, and they will not come to Christ.
because they're moved by emotions, but they're never, ever wanting to come to Christ. So maybe the crowd came because they were just brokenhearted. They seem to be good at that, you know, all the crying, all the beating on their chest. Maybe they came out of ritual or religion. You know, it was common at this time that if a Jewish man was killed, you were supposed to honor the dead. You were supposed to come as a Jewish person. You were supposed to honor the dead. You were supposed to come. And in this situation, you were supposed to do one of two things. You were either supposed to spit on the condemned man to show that you honor God. This was not a godly teaching, but it was something that had come about in the 400 silent years. And so they were commonly to say, this man is a pig. This man is a loser. This man is a criminal. And they would spit on him, just like they were taught to spit on the blind and say, oh, he's blind. He's cursed from, from birth. And they would honor God. They would say, glorify God, they would say. And they would spit on the criminal. So out of ritual, maybe they came to spit on him. Or maybe if they were connected to the family, maybe this big crowd came as Jewish believers and say, we're here to honor the dead. We're here to honor Mary. We're here to make her feel that she's not alone. And maybe out of ritual, they came and they cried with her and they sat with her. Or maybe it was with some of the people that had been healed. They were moved so their families came along with them. And they all cried and they all wailed. It was quite a sight when someone died in Israel. And maybe they cried their eyes out. But when Christ died and he was put away in that tomb, those people went back to normal life, just like it is in many Jewish cultures today. You come and you show your grief, and then you go have uh, dinner. And I think it's the same way in most Christian areas too. I think one of the most amazing things that happened to me when my father died were the people that cared the next week. I'm going to tell you, if you have someone around you, they, they lose someone, care next week, care next month, care next year, because everybody cries on the day that it happens. And maybe these people were just out of ritual, out of religion. Maybe they were showing up. And you know, today that we still live in a country that people still come to Christ in the sense of this. You're supposed to. You know, in Texas, it's mostly Baptists, so we're Baptists. We're supposed to come to Christ. We're, we, you know, we're Baptists, so we must be uh, chosen. We're, we're a Calvinist, so we must be handpicked. So we must come to Christ, not because we're moved about our sin, not because we want to come to Christ, but because we must come to Christ. You know, I believe, and just, you know, hold me in account for this, but I just believe that most of the postmodern movement that showed up five and ten years ago was all birthed out of this exact movement. In the sense of, you have young people that were raised in church situations. Their parents are, are Christians. Their parents are Baptists, Methodists, Nazarenes, whatever it is, some nominal denomination is probably great. But the children were raised in this. They were raised to know the Ten Commandments. They were raised to understand what it meant to be saved. They were raised to understand what it, it maybe even Pentecostal. They were raised to know what it meant to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were raised in these things. They got to college and they began to think, but you know, we really want to live lives unto ourselves. And this church doesn't really have what we would call valuable. And so when they got to be 20, 23, 24, 25, they said, well, we can't walk away from the church. Our, what would our parents think of us? What we really need is relevant ministries. So what they did is they chose two different paths, and just follow this for a moment. You have non-converted young people, tired of the regular church, but can't leave the regular church, so they start new churches, unconverted leaders. And they go in two different directions. One is, the church I grew up in never did good things for people. We'll be a church of charitable acts. And as K.P. O'Hannon always says, he says, charitable acts are great, but they will not replace the preaching of the gospel for souls. And so you have one group that says, we like to uh, call ourselves Christians, we smoke pot, we sleep around, we drink whiskey, but we do charitable acts because those bad people back there didn't do what we're doing. Then the other group, which seems to have much more popularity these days, they went doctrinal. 
Meaning, well, we're not born again, and we're not going to admit that because we know we were, we were raised Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, whatever it was. I was raised that way. I know those things, and so I don't want to live out in that dead, dry religion because I, too, like to drink a few beers every once in a while, and I, too, like to watch a few bad movies. And so I'll start a new ministry that just at least tells everyone we know the doctrines of the faith. So where my dad was a Calvinist, I'll be a 25-point Calvinist. You know, I'll add points to the system. And I'll still be loose living, I'll still joke around, I'll still use profanity, I'll still watch movies that do not honor God, I'll still listen to music that's very secular and God-hating, and I'll still, but I'll still be a minister. But I'm still unconverted. People today still come to churches like that, and to ideologies like that, out of religion, out of ritual, but not for salvation. Maybe the people came because of culture. Maybe it was an attractive thing. Maybe they weren't Jews. Maybe they were Romans. And maybe it was just a fun pastime to see the Jewish men and women killed and taunted and crucified. Maybe as Romans, they just felt a kindred spirit about showing up to the cross that day and saying, oh, it's another one of those thieves. Oh, it's another one of those robbers. Well, in the same way, we live in a place today where many people still come to church and come to Christ out of culture. Oh, did you hear about Deliverance Bible Church? You know, the pastor has tattoos. Oh, my mother would hate that. Let's go. And we'll raise up a banner that's not salvation of the lost, but we'll raise up a banner that says, God doesn't care what you look like on the outside. God looks at the heart. And all it is, it's not a banner of Christ. It's a banner to fight with people that don't like your way. And it's just as godless as anything else. They could have come for culture as people still do it. Maybe it's not culture like this. Maybe it's like uh, some other family members of mine. They like the culture of the ritual of the service. Well, do you do communion every Sunday? No, we can't go there. You don't do communion every Sunday. Our culture taught us to do communion every Sunday. Oh, you don't end with a doxology? Oh, we can't come there. We end with a doxology. Oh, you don't do hymns? Oh, we do hymns. Uh, Is there not a dress code? Oh, we believe in a dress code before church services. Oh, is there not Sunday school, then the service? You have to have Sunday school. If you don't have Sunday school, that's not, a, that's not a church. We can't come there. Oh, is there not someone that stands up in the middle of service and gives a word in tongues, then another person that stands up and gives the interpretation every Sunday? Oh, we can't do that. That's not true Pentecost. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. We're still looking for the way we like it. We're still coming to Jesus for culture. And you don't find Jesus in culture. You just can't do it. Jesus won't fit in any culture. He likes to overthrow culture. This is the best one, I think. Maybe they came out of needs. Now, check this out. What I mean by needs is they came for the blessing. They had a need. Jesus could bless it. You think, well, how could Jesus on the cross give them a blessing that day? Stay awake for a moment. Well, at that time, you could get a pretty sweet job in Israel. And that job was so good that all you had to do is pay attention to the death sentences every day. And you could get a job as a professional mourner. And let me tell you, when Jesus died, there was an upset in the town. Some were saying he's a Messiah. Some are saying he's a liar and he's a thief and he's a revolutionist. Another person is saying, no, but he's the son of God. And there's this big war in this city. The Sanhedrin's gone crazy. The Pharisees have gone crazy. The disciples are running scared. There's chaos. And there's a line saying, I'll do that job today. And they came to Jesus to get blessed. They came to the cross for a blessing. And I'd say a great, huge, giant I, I want to get in the 90 percentile rate here of most Christian preachings in our, in our nation is about come to Jesus for a blessing. 
Come so he can pay your rent. Come so he can heal your heart. Come so he can fix your broken life. Come so he can alter the things that have been lost. Come so he can make you happy. He, he wants to give you a happy gospel, a prospering gospel, an a enjoyable gospel, one that makes everything be, a better gospel. You know, I think that's the biggest thing they're selling. We've got a better gospel. And people are mostly still coming to Jesus for a blessing. And they're still being disappointed that he doesn't offer one. No, you didn't hear that. They're still being disappointed one month, two months, six months down the road when they realize he doesn't give off blessings for people that come for wrong motives. That the cross was not a place of blessing, that wasn't the point. And even though they might have gotten their Christian paycheck, pat on the back, prayer session, felt better, rent paid, Christian wife they found on row three, they're still without, they're still lost, they're still in sin. And most people still come for the blessing. They come out of need. Come to my church. We can help you with that need. Come to my church. You know, we help people like you. Come to my church. You know, there's people that will pray for you. You should come to my church. You know, you get in the worship, you'll feel better. Come to my church. We'll make you feel better. Come to Jesus. He'll take care of all those hurts and all those pains. Come to Jesus. You know, he's looking for people like you. Come to Jesus. He makes everything better. Come to Jesus. Tell that to our North Korean brothers right now who come to Jesus every day. And coming to Jesus means torture and final death where they actually teach each other, if you come to Jesus, it means life will get worse, not better. That's how they preach in eastern China and northern Korea. That's how they preach in Comoros. That's how they preach in the persecuted world. Did you know that out of the persecution, all the religious persecution that takes place in the world today, more than 75% is directed toward Christians? And in those areas, their message sounds like this. Come to Jesus to ruin your life. And actually, as the great, you know, Dr. Wormbrand used to say, he would beg people, please don't come to Jesus. He would give them the gospel and go, please don't come to Jesus because I'm, I feel bad about what your tomorrow will look like. And they would beg him and wrestle him, no, but I want to come. And he would literally arm wrestle them in the spirit and say, please don't, please don't. I don't want to do this to you. You're, you have a wonderful wife. You have wonderful children. Don't you realize you'll lose them in a week? And they would say, please have mercy on me. I want to come to Jesus. Maybe, maybe they came to Jesus that day. Maybe they came to the cross. The most easy way, the way I rebuke a lot at big meetings I go to, maybe they came because everybody else came. You know, mom's a Christian, dad's a Christian, brother's a Christian, friend's a Christian, girlfriend's a Christian, boyfriend's a Christian, friends are Christians. I might as well become a Christian. Every time I go to a big, uh, like, evangelistic thing, you know, maybe there'll be two or three or 4,000 people, and they'll ask me to preach the gospel. And I'll preach the gospel, and they'll say, you got to do an altar call. And I go, I'll do an altar call if I get to say a few things before I do an altar call. And I usually give them all the reasons they shouldn't come to the altar. I argue with them. Don't come up here because of this. Don't come up here because of this. Don't come up here. You have to understand that coming to this altar, coming to the altar is not salvation. You have to understand that saying this prayer is not salvation. Now, I'm not against, do you guys know I'm not against altar calls? Did you guys know I'm not actually even against sinner's prayers? I just want you to know that the altar call is not salvation. Neither is a sinner's prayer. That just because you can get someone to touch a block of wood and say a few words doesn't automatically send them into the kingdom of God. It's not some incantation that sends, but I do believe that broken hearts that are wounded by their sin that need Jesus, yeah, they found him that way. But we have to differentiate the, the method and the reality. 
But I, I've been doing this over the years, and after I've given them the 55 reasons they shouldn't come to Christ, like, don't come because. Finally, I'll say, and the last thing I'm asking you, don't bring your friend up here. And they're like, well, I mean, like, if your friend is lost, you brought them to the meeting, you've never given your friend the gospel, and now you think you can drag your friend into a meeting where I'm going to give them the gospel, that I'll never get to meet them. You've known them for 10, 20 years, and you've never given them the gospel, but if you can get them in a seat, then you think that if I say altar call, you can drag them down that aisle, and they'll get saved against their will. And every time, no matter how many times I say it, you still have two young teenage girls will get out of the aisle, and the one's kind of crying because, you know, the, the, the service was kind of moving. You know, she was emotional. There was a lot of excitement. A lot of people are going down there. And so she's kind of doing this bit and like, I need a tissue. Wait, okay. I'm not ready, okay. Like, give me a break. And her friend's like, it's okay. I'll go with you. It's okay. I'll go with you. She's like, okay, I'm still trying to work this out, okay. Like, and, it's okay. I'll go with you. It's okay. I'll go with you. It's okay. I'll go with you. She should be saying, I won't be there on judgment day. I won't be with you when it counts. That although I'm walking you down here, you'll still stand before God as a holy judge who will, in righteousness, judge you without me. And every time I see it, I stop the altar call. And I go, right here, no, 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 stop. I go, she can't come by herself. She needs to go back to her seat. And then the one that's with her will go, oh, I know. She just needs some encouragement. And I'm not, I am a Christian. Like, I'm not, I'm not like these filthy, rotten sinners here that need to get born again. I am, jeez, you know. And many times in the middle of thousands of people, I'll go, no, go sit down. If she can't come by herself, go sit down. Both of you, go sit down. And people are like, you're robbing them of salvation. No, I'm robbing them of foolishness. I'm taking from them false hope. I'm taking from them a false experience, a false conversion. I'm saving them disdain in their heart for so many years later about the church. Well, you know, I went down there. Oh, my friend even said she'd go with me. We went down there. I prayed some prayer. I felt better for about a day or two. And then everything in my life was still crappy. Yeah, because Jesus never said, I came as the way, the truth, and life to get you out of crappiness. No one gets out of crappiness except by me. But isn't that just about the stupidest stuff we preach? We preach that stupid, I mean, that's how stupid and foolish it is. So maybe the people came that day just because everybody else came. The, the, the city was alive. The church was alive. The altar call was buzzing, man. People were heading down there. But I'm going to tell you, everybody in that many, that huge group, that huge crowd that came and they were emotional and they gave every sign of something going on inside of them. You know, I've noticed over the years that just because people come to an altar call, just because they look visibly broken, just because they cry and they wail and maybe snots all over the place, they're, you know, God have mercy on me. I've still seen those people walk away from Christ. So I've learned to say, oh, it's the emotions actually have no play in this thing. I mean, the emotions are fine if they're real, and they're not if they're not. But really, I have no gauge anymore for emotions. Because I've seen people get very excited about Christ, get very wounded over Christ, get very broken over Christ, and they still left Christ. And this huge group of people all came for some reason. And whatever the reason was, we don't know what each individual reason is or the big crowd's reason, but whatever the reason was, it was wrong. you got to get this. They came to the cross. It wasn't like when we give some weak salvation message. Come try Jesus. He'll make it all better. Oh, I want that. Do you want Jesus to be your best friend? Oh, I love him to be my best friend. Pray this simple prayer. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about they came to the cross. And even at the cross, they were emotional. They were broken. And when it was all over, all the emotion passed. All the brokenness was healed. 
all their issues felt lighter, and they returned, they turned back. They turned away. And the man stops Jesus and says, are you saying that only few will be saved? He says, I'm going to tell you something. You better work hard to enter that narrow gate. He goes, I'm going to tell you, there are many who will try to enter. They will try to seek Christ. They will try to be born again. They will seek salvation. They will, with broken hearts, with tears out of their eyes, will cry out, have mercy, and they will not be saved. Because something was wrong with the motive. Something was wrong with the reason. And I'm telling you, if you come to Christ for the wrong reason, you're still as lost as before you found him. And you'll be one of those people that stand on judgment day and say, God, but I cast out demons in your name. I prophesy in your name. He'll look at you and go, anything can be done in my name. There's power in my name. Casting out demons in my name doesn't testify that you were broken and you were saved. It's not a testimony of salvation. It's a testimony of the power of his name. He said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, lawlessness of sin. There is an interesting guy at the cross. That This big, huge crowd came. They were obviously moved. They were obviously brokenhearted. They cried. They wept. They were in agony over Jesus dying on that cross. They walked away. The people of God that already believed on him were watching from a distance. And the people that believed on him were waiting to see what they would do with the body. They had already believed on him. They're watching, and they notice one guy. One guy. He didn't come for excitement. He didn't come for emotion. He didn't come because everyone else came. He came out of obligation. He had to be there. He had no desire to be there. He found himself there. He had been compelled and commanded to be there. And it was a centurion. He had come there because he had to be there. He hadn't thought about it all night. He hadn't been really working this whole Jesus thing out. He didn't care. Plus, he's not just a Roman. He's a man that has guard over a hundred other men. He's known. He's popular. People know who he is. He's that centurion. Are you with me? He's got all his guys all set up around, you know, the perimeter, trying to keep everyone from getting too close to this or not touch this. And he's standing there with Jesus. And when he sees Jesus on the cross, and when he sees him die, this man who was compelled to be there commanded to be there, against his own will, found himself there. He's the only guy that gets the revelation of who Jesus is. And his heart is ripped and he says, surely this man was righteous. And that man was changed in that moment. Because there's only one right reason to come to Christ, and it's for righteousness. It's because we are sinners that have chosen sin We've turned our backs on God. We've been God-haters whether we want to realize it or not or acknowledge it or not. We've been divided from a holy God because of our sin, because we're liars, because we're thieves, because we've been cheats, because we've had hatred in our heart, because we're murderous in our thoughts, because we're wicked and carnal and there's no good thing in us. I don't care what church you grew up in. There's no good thing in you. I don't care how American you are. There's no good thing in you. Our sins have ruined its toxins to our spiritual life that have destroyed any hope for us ever to be reunited with the one that made us. And this centurion stood there and realized his wickedness. He realized his wickedness. He realized all my best efforts at goodness are filthy rags. 
All my best attempts are worth nothing. He saw his unrighteousness, and he saw the polar opposite. He looked at Christ and said, that man holds righteousness. And he was wounded. He didn't even want to come to Christ. Get that for a second. He was commanded to come to Christ. You will never come to Christ on your own desire. You will never come to Christ because you really feel like you need to work some things out and you need to get in a church, you need to get a Bible study because you know my parents were Christians and I need to work some stuff out and you know I'm going through, I'm going through a divorce and, and my kids are out of control and I'm, I'm going to come to Christ. No, you won't. You'll come to the cross, you'll beat that chest, you'll leave. But it's when the power of the Holy Spirit begins to force you to look upon that man. This is what I pray over my friends that are lost. God, I ask that you'd sovereignly Break their souls. Break their hearts over their sin. Wound them with Jesus. It's where this unseen guide begins to press them. You know, in 1995, I didn't want to come to Christ. This is a funny story. I'll tell you what, this is what's so funny. I became a Christian the day after I became an atheist. That's not a joke. Within one day, within 24 hours of me declaring I was an atheist, I became a Christian. I had decided I am not going to believe upon this man. I do not need to be saved from my sins. I do not need to worry about going to heaven or going to hell. I'm just here as long as I'm here. All this stupid religious stuff is just going to fade away. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to have peace in myself. And I settled it. And then that night, telling, I don't want this God thing. He doesn't exist anyways. That night I have a dream. And God gives me a dream. And the dream was that I couldn't get into heaven and that I was on my way to hell. And I was so shaken by the dream that I woke up not wanting to come to Christ, being forced to look upon Christ. And I battled for about four hours against my unrighteousness and his righteousness. And I didn't say some sinner's prayer. There was an inward submission that took place. There was an inward letting go that took place. It wasn't, well, Lord, I'll serve you if you will. Well, if you'll fix this, I'll come to you. Well, God, you know, if you'll make me like all these other great Christians, I don't want to struggle with this, now this. No, there was a weakness that took place. And every moment of those four hours after that dream, he pressed on me, pressed on me, pressed on me. There's no other way. You have no hope. This is your only opportunity. You're going to die and go to hell for your sins. Christ is the only answer. And I began to be pressed to the ground by this conviction. And after four hours, I said, God, I want to get away from you. I don't want to listen to this. I don't want to do this. And I decided, well, I'm going to go take a shower. I'm going to, like, go someplace. And I begin to get ready. And the presence of God begins to just torture me. And I begin to see all my sins. And I begin to, without even really wanting to, begin to repent of sin after sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. And we finally got down to the great sin of idolatry that I'd been carrying. For me, I always say, it sounds stupid to some people, but I carried an idolatry for music and culture. And I said, God, I'll, I was like, I would serve you, but just don't change that in me. And he said, then you can't serve me. God, I'm asking you to save me if you could just let me hold on this. He goes, I won't save you if you hold on to that. And I remember I finally, this is, this is how my breaking point came, being so wounded, saying, okay. And when I said, okay, every bit of me like died on the ground. I didn't walk away going, praise God, my sins have been forgiven. I walked away like numb knowing that my old life would never be seen again. It was this huge, like, it was like someone I knew had just been shot and killed. 
And it took me probably two days to even understand the wonderful grace of God. Two days later, I'm driving to college I was going to at the time. And I'm driving, and I was like a really mean driver. I'd run people off the road, yell at people, give them the fingers, shut up. And, you know, I'm driving to school that day, and this guy comes up on me, and, I mean, he's, like, honking at me, wanting me to move. I'm like, I'm already going, like, 104. You know, like, what do you want from me? And when I saw him in the, in the rearview mirror, I remember I said, wow, Lord, he must have to be someplace. And I pulled over. And when the guy, and I meant not, but he flew by, by me, and I went, whoa, like, what have you done to me? I'm being serious. I was like, what has happened to me? And on that moment, two days later, I began to worship the Lord. God, you are amazing. Nobody's ever been able to do that to me. No one's been able to change me. Nothing I've ever tried has ever done that. Nothing has ever healed me like that. Nothing, I've never felt like this. And I was never the same. But it didn't come because I felt, you know, I messed up this, I messed up this. I need to really come to Christ. Because you don't have the power to even come. Because you'll always come for the wrong reasons. But I believe there's some people in this room, you're being pressed to the ground. You didn't come here on accident. Maybe you've been serving the Lord next to the person next to you. They think you're born again. Revelation of God has come to you today, and you're like, I'm as lost as I've ever been. As much as I'd love to make a big emotional stir, well, let's, let's, let's beat our chest and come to the altar. I'm going to tell you something powerful. Is it right where you are? You have just as much response and just as much weakness, and you could just make that, okay, okay, okay. I hear you calling me, Lord. I hear you calling me. I'm not coming for this. I'm not coming for that. But God, if you would have mercy on me, and if you would save me from this ungodly, unholy, sinful man that I am, please do. I'll give you my life. I'll give you my future, my past, my present. But if you'll have mercy on me, God, please do. And I know right now you don't want to die. And I know right now you're scared to die. But you're going to die. And you're going to die sooner than you want to die. And when you die, you're going to face the judgment of God. Whether you believe that or not, you will. And that God's going to bring out every single moment of your life. He's going to weigh in the balance everything you've done, whether good or evil. And you're going to come up short. And you're going to come up wanting. In the midst of him showing you that whole life, you're going to come to a moment that you thought didn't matter, that you thought you didn't care about, that it didn't really have much value, and you're going to see your heart mocking the word of God as someone's pleading with you. Do you know that my life doesn't get better if you get born again? I don't get money. I don't get value. I don't get acclaim. Nothing changes in my life if you surrender to Christ. But everything changes in your life if you do or you don't. And I'm telling you, God is calling some people to the cross, not to just make an emotional display, but to come to Christ for righteousness. And if you feel like you've come for any other reason, I want you just to repent and ask the Lord if he had mercy on you. And I believe some of you, your days are so short. You say, you're trying to scare me? Yeah, because I don't want you to die and go to hell. Well, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God to move on your heart. Father, I ask right now.